Well, hello and welcome to the Transfix Take On. I'm your host, Jenny Ruiz, and we welcome today Charlie Echeverri, founder and CEO of Black Brown, which is a strategic advisory that builds culture-forward business strategies for companies entering new markets or transforming existing ones. Now today we are taking on the investment of operational diversity in the supply chain, and I'm very excited as this topic is near and dear to my heart. Welcome to the show, Charlie. It's so awesome. nice to have you. Thanks for having me on, Jenny. Really great to see you again, too. Yeah, we go way back to uh, Me Too days for anybody who you know, used to watch their content and recognize my face back then. There is, a re- <laughs> there is a real legitimate Me Too diaspora. There are a lot of people out there in the world that I run into who have some overlap with that great startup. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, we, we can go on and on about it, um, and we will after the show, but <laughs> we're here to talk about Black Brown, which um, I would love for us to... You know, take me to the beginning phase of that and, and sort of how it got started. You know, you noted your origin story um, as, quote, no one seemed focused on how diversity could be leveraged as a strategic revenue engine. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I spent a lot of, my career uh, has been spent in the media world. So and mostly focused on emerging platforms, digital media, that kind of thing. Yeah. I got my start, you know, back in the day when the internet was new at something called America Online, which then became AOL. But the whole point of it was to give people access to this thing called the internet and change the world. And by and large, they were actually pretty successful in doing that. Oh, yeah. And then I went to work at the Walt Disney Company and then ultimately Univision. And then I got hooked up into the startup scene. That's where you and I met. Um, and a lot of fun there. But for the, you know, the, the last... I'd say maybe 15 plus years of my life, um, my focus has been on what we've, what I've historically come to understand as emerging audiences or emerging consumers. And these tend to be consumers that you know are either in the Latino or black community. They're ones that have and harness a lot of cultural influence. And they're ones that uh, increasingly companies of all kinds, I mean, marketers, I guess, first initially, brands became very focused on But now, as time goes on, really broadly, lots of categories of companies and outside of just the marketing discipline have become focused on. Right. The kind of idea for me was having worked in all of that and having run businesses focused on speaking to those consumers. The part that struck me when I got out of my last startup was I really still wanted to be very invested in these communities and very much a business person. That's that's what I am. And it struck me that most of the way that the corporate industry sort of writ broadly, just like using big, big letters, corporate world, was focused on two ways to really understand diverse constituency. Way number one was human resources. You know, we mm-hmm. have a lot of conversation, still ongoing conversation and controversy increasingly about, oh, yeah. di- about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. So things that are HR related was one way that the corporate industries across categories were focused on it. And the other way was marketing, right? We've mm-hmm. built a product or an initiative and now we want it to make sense to a type of constituency. So let's adapt it, let's transcreate it, let's translate it, let's do a variety of different things to basically sell that thing to this community. Those were the two ways that diversity was broadly understood. Mm-hmm. And the thought that I had was it seemed like there was a, a, like a higher ground to that. Because if you think about it, both HR and certainly marketing mm-hmm. tend to be sort of at the end of the funnel in terms of decision making, right? You're either recruiting someone for a JD you've already built 
or you are marketing a product that's already been designed and specced out and maybe even has some history, and then you're trying to sell it. Both of them seem very low in the kind of process funnel. And I thought that there was much greater opportunity at the top of that funnel, mm. at, the, at the point where ideas, strategies, and products are born, like where they begin. And if we could figure out how to get diverse strategy and insights and ideas in at that point, rather than just at the end of the funnel when all the decisions had made sense, I thought that that could be a really interesting value proposition to bring to the marketplace. So that's where Black Brown was born six years ago, in fact. So, um, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about the origin story and guides yeah. a lot of the work that we do. Now, tell me, you know, because you're absolutely right, right? I, I, I lo- a lot of the organizations that I've worked with in the past, it usually is brought on only towards the very end at the, at the bottom of the funnel. What has been the change that you've noticed when you implement these sort of strategies at the very top of the funnel? Well, I mean, the changes are dramatic. I mean, think about just on the marketing side alone, which is why, you know, I tend to be somewhat controversial among my Hispanic media peers, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the marketing funnel, once you've made all the decisions, then you take your product or your campaign and you say, hey, I need to go buy ads on Univision or Me Too, some of the places I've worked before, because those are the places that connect with these audiences. But if you start at the very beginning and say, okay, how does diversity drive what the product is to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. How do we build those insights into the starting point of that? And by product, I just mean whatever it might be. Sure. Then the reliance that you have on targeting your marketing specifically actually diminishes. So you're having your marketing Your marketing doesn't need to do as much work as it previously would if the product or initiative or strategy has a lot of that baked into it anyway. And so you might be able to get mileage from a marketing standpoint with a diverse, you know, infused product or a diverse infused strategy. You might be able to get mileage out of that product in a variety of different media types, not just in targeted media to a particular community. And again, I'm not suggesting you don't need to advertise in those places as well. You should, but when you have a product that hasn't considered that constituency at its design phase, then you're really asking the marketing to do everything, right? To do all of it. And it just becomes kind of a circular thing where the marketing might disappoint and then you go, oh, well, maybe this constituency doesn't matter as much. And I've heard a lot of that kind of conversation over the years. So this is a way to kind of short circuit that in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, but the changes are pretty dramatic. You know, I want to talk a little bit about specifically the supply chain because it's becomes more of this attractive industry probably since 2020, um, where now everyone knew what the supply chain was when they weren't getting their packages, right. you know, especially millennials. It's <laughs> true. Right. And so now we're starting to see more and more millennials and Gen Zers enter in the supply chain as their primary career choice, which ultimately I think has been the launch pad of diversification for employee makeup across companies. Sure. Right. It's something that's still fairly new to the industry, but I'm curious to know how do you think these generations entering the workforce will challenge age old approaches to operational excellence? Well, I think when you talk about um, millennial and Gen Z people entering the workforce, you get a lot of that diversity baked into the cake because these are among the most diverse generations, certainly that this country has ever seen, right? So by virtue of that kind of generational change, you're getting, you're you're able to really take advantage of and leverage 
the diversity that naturally comes within that cohort. Now, that's that's sort of the table stakes way to do it, mm -hmm. right? Just sort of take everybody in and go, okay, well, this is the mix of folks that, that this generation has. Or you could do a, more, a much more intentional approach. Look, for me, when I think about this, to me, it's all about being externally oriented, right? The, the fact of it is, and there's been lots of good scholarship on this, um, uh, Harvard Business Review has done a bunch of work in this area, Boston Consulting Group has done a bunch of work in this area, that has found that diverse teams are just better positioned in the area of innovation, and innovation has a really strong connection to market growth or to mm -hmm. market share capture. So if you kind of think about it as like an equation, Diversity ends up being, you know, equaling more innovation. More innovation provides a business edge that drives to market share. So it's a really, really strong, you know, correlation. But it's all about being externally oriented to those things. So, right. the, the, and we should all be. You and I spent a lot of time in the sort of new media world. And in the new media world, you're really always looking out at what everybody's doing. You're right. studying the industry. I mean, our industry, digital media anyway, was what created terms like frenemy and coopetition, right? We're always looking at what's happening on on the outside and ways that we can either partner with some of our competitors or at least learn from them. This is a phenomenon that is slowly entering, you know, a variety of other categories and perhaps even supply chain. So mm -hmm. to me, I see this kind of Focusing in on diversity, especially with millennial and Gen Z, as another way of being externally oriented to what's going on in the world. And if you do that well, then you're going to have a team, whether it's management or on the line people, mm -hmm. that are going to drive more innovation and therefore ultimately drive better results, which I think like everybody should want, right? I mean, that, that should be the primary goal, right? You would think. Yeah, you would think, you know, I, I want to shift a little bit into the current social and uh, geopolitical climate. You know, yeah. there's a lot to talk about here in this space, especially as we enter a new year and there's a lot, you know, we're entering an election year as well. How can companies continue to stay focused on providing safe spaces and equitable opportunities for these marginalized communities, especially considering budgets are tighter than ever before? I think that they have to understand the both and of diversity, okay? Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that diversity has previous, has mostly been understood as something that we ought to do because yeah. it's good for the world. It's seldom talked about as something that we should do because it's good for our business. Both of those things have to be considered almost at, in the same way, okay? Harvard uh, did a study a really comprehensive one where they looked at something like a thousand DE&I um, programs and implementations in a variety of different industries. And they measured diversity inside of those companies prior to the implementation of DE&I programs and then after the implementation of DE&I programs. Mm -hmm. And what they found was fascinating. And by the way, not the least bit uncontroversial either. They actually found that in most cases, internal diversity uh, measured by you know basically the ethnicity cultural makeup of those organizations actually dropped it didn't increase it dropped after DEI and then the study goes deeper to understand why that was and what they found was really interesting number one they found that it dropped um, you know it dropped in aggregate but when you really isolated who was dropping 
who was dropping was people who instituted mandatory DNI pro, DEI programs. In yeah. other words, they didn't give their employee body an opportunity to weigh in. It was something you had to do. That was number one. And the second one, which ties into my point, is that it had nothing to do with their business. Meaning it was like, here's what's going on in the world. Diversity is good for everybody. Therefore, you will go through this training and like it. Right? It was sort of that way. Right. And, and so what that led me to, and I had seen some of these signals myself just in my own life, but what it, what it really led me was to understand that if we're only thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion from a kind of global stance perspective, like mm -hmm. this is good for the world, and we're not tying it into how it actually materially impacts the, 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 the fruitfulness of our business efforts, then we're going to have failures. So my advice to people in this geopolitical climate is to ensure that whenever we're having conversations about diversity, we're wedding those two, the impact globally and to the world and the right thing to do with what is right for our business. And if you bring those two things together, then you're able to have really these, these initiatives take, a, take on a life of their own. Yeah. And that's critical, Jenny, because what happens in a lot of cases is that these sort of diversity things, whatever they are, whether it's DEI or it's some other thing, they get siloed. They get put into a corner run by one person, mm -hmm. and th that person has no authority, generally very little budget. Most of their peers don't really understand what they do. That's the hard truth. That's the hard yeah. truth of it. And, and that's because in a lot of those cases, diversity has been approached in that singular way. Like, it's just good. You should want to do it. As yeah. opposed to, it's good, but it's good for us too. And here's how we actually make it part of everybody's job. When both of those things happen, then you can have success. And that's what I would advise in this climate and frankly, any climate. Yeah. Yeah. But when you say, you know, making it a part of everybody's job, I think there's this common misconception that you have to stop what you're doing, stop your day to day and focus solely on understanding these, you know, these nuances between different communities and so forth. How do you move people away from that mindset? I think it's really, uh, you know, being consumer oriented. Everybody, yeah. whether you're B2B or B2C, you have constituencies, okay? Right. You have people that you care about. Either they're your direct customers, they're your distributors, they're your partners, whatever it is. And so from my standpoint, I see diversity and an, and an understanding of diversity in the way that I've described it as taking that consumer or constituent knowledge as far as you can. You mm -hmm. should want to study, to be involved with the lives of your constituencies in as intimate a, a way as possible as an extension of that sort of market strategy. So the more that we think about it as a side gig, as a side job, as something person X in the company does, the more we're, we're actually kind of shooting ourselves in the foot, right? Sure. As, so at, when I say everybody's job, what I mean by that is it should be integrated and it should be um, it should be like a water level that rises in the organization where people in marketing and product and technology and HR and senior executive leadership understand this as a part of just knowing who our constituents are and making a best effort to serve them because yeah. that's what every business's objective should be. So if you talk about diversity that way, then it, it's it's. It's easier to manage, kind of counterintuitive. It's easier to manage, and you actually go farther. You know what I mean? You go yeah. farther in your efforts, which we should all want. We should all want. And you know what? When you say it that way, it's so. it just seems like it's, it's you know, for lack of a better term, low-hanging fruit. Because it think is. of, right? Like, 
I think about our sales team and I think about um, the very beginning stages of any new company when you're trying to build personas. This is an intricate layer that you should be adding into your personas to understand who are your buyers, what are the nuances between their different you know, co- communities and, and um, age groups and so forth that feels almost like, why are you not touching that? <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, there's there's apprehension in certain cases, certainly on the marketing side, you know, if, if there's any marketers in your audience, the yeah. idea of sort of segmenting or looking at personas, that's a very common thing to do. And yet when you consider, let's just isolate for a second, the Hispanic community, it's about 60 plus million strong in the U.S. It's very diverse itself. It's got all different types of ethnicities, all types of language preferences. It's a lot, right? Yeah. And so when you look at it from a marketing standpoint, people can get overwhelmed. They can go, okay, wait. Now I've got to have a plan for the Puerto Rican Hispanics and the Dominicans and the Colombians and the Mexicans. And so a lot of the times that sense of overwhelm of trying to solve for everything at a sort of very detailed nuanced level is actually, uh, you know, how they say perfection is the enemy of the good kind of thing. Right. Where where the idea is rather let's best study who our constituents are constituencies are let's understand them at an intimate level and then let's look for things that bind them together right Right. what are things that move the needle collectively rather Mm -hmm. than in this very sort of surgical kind of way because i've seen jenny plenty of instances where people will start it from the prism of really trying to do something for every single cohort and then they end up doing nothing because it gets so unwieldy that they just can't do it right and then they abandon the effort they're like oh it's just too hard so we want to kind of avoid those those circumstances and so our at black brown what we advise is is tucking in the idea of diversity into every vehicle, into every work stream, into every process. It's not about inventing new ones. Mm-hmm. It's about how do we can shape the ones that exist now. And yet, that way you supercharge those things and you're not in this, in this sort of unwieldy situation where you've set up all of these various things that ultimately don't really gel with the rest of the business. And that's, all, that's what happens a lot of the times. Yeah. You know, Black Brown is all about um, analyzing the data behind transformative, meaningful growth for companies. I'd love to hear what have been some of the more surprising analyses that you can share since its inception. Oh, absolutely. So we we work with a bunch of different categories. Nobody in on the on the supply chain specifically, I think, but maybe maybe <laughs> after this podcast, who knows? Yeah, exactly. But, but, but we work with everything from manufacturing to yeah. quick service, automotive, retail, sports, a lot of work in that area. And I can I, I think about one case in particular. We have um, a longstanding relationship with um, pretty much the largest manufacturing company um, in the space for construction materials. So think of roofing shingles uh, mm-hmm. insulation and materials to actually build stuff whether they're whether they're homes or you know buildings yeah. Very, multi-billion dollar uh, global company if, if you go to our website you'll know who it is but I, I'll, I'll refrain from naming them specifically okay in any case the u.s is their biggest market and after some interaction with the president of one of their roofing divisions we basically hit upon the the data point that they had three constituents that they cared about, three groups of consumers. Mm. One group was contractors, people who do the, hire the groups to do this work and buy this stuff. The second group was the workers themselves. And then the third group was homeowners. So those mm. were their three 
kind of key constituents, right? It's like that, that, that's, they live or die by virtue of those three sets of consumers. And what we discovered was like, okay, well, w- wait a minute. A third in the market that you say you care about, the U.S., a third of contractors, a full third, are Hispanic. Hmm. Half of the workforce in construction is Hispanic. And 70% of new home ownership growth is coming from Hispanics. And the idea that a strategy to really look at this opportunity across the board did not exist was the way into creating a strategy for this organization that now cuts across the whole enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. So hitting upon that, which we didn't know, we didn't know those stats existed until we started studying it and then really realized, well, wow, this is like a monster constituency inside of every single constituency you say you care about in this market. And yet we don't have a discrete plan for how we actually best serve that constituency within a constituency. So Mm -hmm. the data always is fascinating to us. And that's really where all of our work begins is by really trying to understand what the data is so that we can either solve a thorny problem or we can open a new market or whatever the the initiative might be. That is stunning data. I mean, and that's really where it comes from. And you're speaking, um, most of your customers are customers of ours that will listen to this podcast. So I'm hoping that they reach out and also, you know, are considering taking a look at, at, what this approach and how this approach could benefit their business um, and their customers, right? Even I think the B2B aspect is, is very interesting to me because although most of our customers um, are B2C, they're also dealing with a lot of B2B. And I don't necessarily know if there is a, um, a strong sense of urgency in that particular market just yet. I think you bring up a super interesting point that, frankly, we've been discovering ourselves over the last couple of years. My background has always been B2C. And even when I started this company, our, all of our clients were basically B2C. They were people who were sen- selling or creating for the end consumer, the end homeowner, and that was it. And yet we discovered, kind of tripped into this sort of B2B opportunity with manufacturing and other categories. And it's sort of like this whole greenfield opportunity where a lot of this type of thinking hasn't yet been focused in B2B sectors as much as, say, you know, I don't know, Nike or Target or Toyota or all these different companies that maybe have gotten some of this thinking earlier in their life cycle. In B2B, in manufacturing, in, you know, hand tools, in all of these different, which are massive businesses, as you know. There, there really hasn't been as much of an intentional approach to bring some of this understanding into those equations. But every one of them, I think, supply chain's another one. I don't know what the constituencies are in every supply chain business, but I can imagine that it mirrors this kind of manufacturer that I was talking about, right? Maybe, maybe in the case of supply chain, there's also distributors and other things, but right. in each of those kind of macro constituencies, you have this like diverse story that's not understood. And then once you understand it, you can do a lot with it. Hmm. Oh, that's inspiring. It really is. And, you know, let's also pivot a bit because we're talking, yeah. we're right on B2B. To, B to now, it, it can be really difficult to get the attention of C-suite and VPs, you know, executives of that nature when discussing the effort that it takes to unlock diversity as a revenue and business engine. How does diversity play a role in this? Like, what are some of the success stories on this level that you've seen? 
Well, the approach that we've taken is we, we kind of drink our own Kool-Aid and at Black Brown. So thought leadership is a very big part of mm. how we break into those conversations with the C-suite. Yeah. We come historically, and both you and I share this, we come from an industry that has a tremendous amount of intermediaries, right? Advertising agencies, creative agencies, and all that stuff. And because the work is, such, is so scaled, a lot of the times the client or the customer basically has agencies deal with almost everything. And so it's very difficult to sort of enter just even to get to a client, let alone a sort of senior level conversation. In this new work that we've been doing since Black Brown, since its inception, we've really leaned on, on helping to make our clients knowledgeable on something they didn't previously know. So thought leadership is a really big part of how we begin that conversation. So yes, it's things like podcasts and interviews and that kind of stuff, but it's also things like publishing our own white papers and our own infographics. We've got one right now that we're about to publish in, in Q1 that's focused on understanding the Latino homeowner from only a B2B perspective. In other words, how do they make decisions on you know, remodeling and landscaping and building a deck and doing all these different things. And to our knowledge, no one's done that before, right? Everybody's looked at Latino consumers from a B2C standpoint, but not from a B2B standpoint, and especially not as how they, how it relates to how they make these kind of vendor decisions or contracting decisions. So that thought leadership opens doors for us to enter into those conversations with CEOs, COOs, chief strategy officers, folks like that, who are interested more broadly in like, hey, how can I you know, enter a new market? How can I drive change management in my own organization? How can I shake things up if maybe we've gotten a little sleepy because we're at the top of the pile and meanwhile, every year somebody's eating into our share? Those are all of the use cases that, um, that are like prime for us, right? Usually there's a big problem or there's a need because somebody's nipping at our heels and we want to maintain our kind of leadership position. So we use our own thought leadership to do that. Uh, just as one brief example, um, sure. we did a partnership with the ANA, with the American um, uh, National Advertising Association. And um, we developed uh, some thought leadership material for their members. So their members are CMOs, basically, from B2B and B2C. And so mm -hmm. we put on these webinars, and they were all about changing the chip, of understanding diversity in a completely different way, of tying it into your business, of integrating it into your business metrics. And as a result of that, like we've entered into a lot of conversations with CMOs that I don't know I necessarily would have even known. So it's, it's really thought leadership that we've used as our kind of primary way in to kind of kick off these conversations with folks. So we have, you know, we, I think we've gotten into the point of B2C. We're talking about the, the C-suite level. Now, a lot of the decision making, and I don't want to go too far into the HR aspect of it, but I think it's important to understand that, you know, it also diversity and bringing people into your company is also how to achieve this this goal of success. Now, you know, I want to present you with a particular uh, uh, scenario here. When companies are aggressively scaling up, they let's say they have two candidates for, you know, vying for one particular role. One has a degree in the field that they're applying for. Another perhaps has um, a less traditional career path, maybe needs a little bit more training, but has everything they need to succeed and comes from a marginalized community, right? The candidate um, with the degree is the one that gets hired. 
How does Black Brown challenge this so that we can invest more in that untraditionally perfect candidate that oftentimes gets overlooked? Well, I think we challenge it principally by leaning into this idea of the importance of innovation in inside of any uh, corporate environment. To the extent that innovation is important to your business, then to the extent you should be making an intentional effort to look in different watering holes for your talent because there is a direct correlation between diversity and innovation. So, and I don't know too many businesses say, oh, well, innovation, we don't really care about that. Like, we'll, just, <laughs> right. we'll just sort of leave, leave that out. So that's the, the sort of the, the, the starting point. I have to give a lot of credit to, um, you know, to, to big sort of entrepreneurial thinkers that are out there recently, even somebody who's, you know, not, not, uh, not impervious to his own controversy, but somebody like Elon Musk is an example who, mm. you know, not too long ago said that he didn't even care if people had high school degrees, let alone college degrees. And you want to talk about a scaled up organization, SpaceX, Tesla, these are all scale organizations, but that he had replaced things like, oh, you have that rubber stamp of a four year degree with your ability to do something that was practically necessary for that given business. So in the case of, um, of, uh, of Tesla, I think it was, it was like, you know, really hardcore coding experience for a lot of the kind of back end that drives those vehicles. And for SpaceX, it might be something else. But and then, by the way, consequently, Google followed suit like a year later saying, oh, yeah, we don't need we don't require four year degrees either. So I think some of these voices that have built these you know great companies coming out and saying, we've got to do a job of, of looking beyond the rubber stamp of a particular uh, you know, degree in order to find the people who can bring some of that innovative thinking into our organizations have begun to like show evidence of what it is that I'm talking about. So really for me, it begins with the importance of innovation. The second thing that I would say is that diversity is a good to your point, bringing people from diverse backgrounds, cultural and otherwise is a good for your business. And it's a good for the world. We've kind of agreed on that. The question that I always ask myself is why is that a good, right? And if you really think about it, and I have, if you really think (laughs) about it, the reason why it's good to have people from diverse, let's take ethnic experiences or cultural experiences, the reason that that's good is because they don't think the same. They don't think the same. Right. That is the beauty of diversity. Somebody who has a Latin American background or an Asian background or an African background or whatever it may be, brings with them a different way of looking at the world. And so when they're inside your organization, that different way of looking at the world comes with them. So we, we, we kind of think of diversity oftentimes as this, again, this like bumper sticker, right? And we lose sight of what's behind it. The most important type of diversity is this diversity of seeing the world. And that Mm. comes by these different diverse groups that we can bring into our organization. So it's a net good across the board. But we have to remind, you know, leaders, this is why diversity is good, because it ties to innovation and because it challenges our thinking internally. And that's what business is all about is like, you know, A-B testing is trial and error is divergent points of view kind of wrestling to find the right thing. If you don't have that, then you have stagnation and you have inertia and you have just like, you know, the same kind of like, oh, we're good, you know, don't worry about it. Right. And then that usually ends up leading people to a bad place. 
So this is the inherent issue that the supply chain and logistics industries have, right? This age-old industry, age-old industry that historically works on these ebbs and flows of the market and between shippers that are, you know, the the targets, the best buys of the world and so forth to um, uh, their, their, their customers. And so because of that, it ends up being this like, you don't want to challenge the idea of how the market works, but then when the market doesn't work in, in either side's favor, a shipper or a carrier, it then, it, it becomes this huge issue of, well, how do we get it back in our favor? And innovation is, should be at the forefront of this industry. And for some reason it's not, I, you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but for sort of these old industries that have existed time for many, many years, decades, where where does that mentality come from? Why don't we want to break that mold? It's, you know, a lot of it is the pitfalls of being um, at the top of uh, an, an, an economic table, right, which yeah. is... You know, this this has happened in pretty much every industry mm-hmm. in the world that I come from that you have some you know experience in the media world. Yeah. There was that, too, where, you know, initially it was broadcasters who kind of ruled the roost and they didn't need to evolve until, you know, some new technologies began to emerge that were better serving their consumers than they were. And they mm-hmm. started getting disintermediated. And that's what happens <clears throat> in those cases where you have very laggard industries where they're like, well, we don't need to change. We don't need to do this. You're eventually going to get disintermediated, right? There's new technologies. I mean, look, Transfix is an example of that. This kind of like digital startup in the, in this kind of shipping space and all of that. And there's other examples beyond. So, you know, the, those gaps become opportunities either for you or for somebody else, you know, your Mm. competitor or a startup. And that doesn't mean that you throw out solid business principles with with this idea of doing something new. This isn't about being fashionable. This is about innovation. Innovation is something that every single business, go back thousands of years, has had. That's what gave birth to the greatest inventions we've ever seen. And so being oriented to innovation is really what they should be focused on. I think when people hear, even sometimes these businesses you're describing, or these industries you're describing, they hear things like innovation or diversity and they're kind of scare terms in a way. Right? Yeah. Because like, oh, my, my world is going to change. Well, yes, but it's going to change with you as a driver of that or without you as a driver mm-hmm. of that. Which would you prefer? Right? And so if you have the leadership position and you're at the top of the pile, incorporating this kind of thinking only ensures you stay there rather than being, you know, disintermediated as so many people have. Just last week, um, they were announcing the demise of this very storied media brand called Sports Illustrated that I'm sure everybody's (laughs) heard, right? Yeah. And Sports Illustrated, this vaunted brand magazine from like back in the day and had sort of relied, and in my opinion, over relied on this sort of nostalgic view of what it was rather than using some more innovation to sort of reinvent what it meant to be a Sports Illustrated fan. Um, and, what, and what even sports was, right? Which, by the way, sports is an entire category that's been completely transformed by diversity. And yet, if you don't understand that, and if you don't incorporate that, you see the results. So my only thought and it would be encouragement to those people who might be in those industries that are a bit laggard 
to really think of innovation as a ring fencing of your leadership position. It's a way to protect your leadership position, not to like rock the apple cart. It's not disruptive in that sense. It's disruptive to the extent it actually lets you stay in a position that you currently occupy. That was beautifully said. I mean, I, I really, I would love for you to give our listeners a reason. Um, well, I think that you've given them tons of reasons, but have them walk away with some key approaches to help them connect diversity with the operational side of their business. Um, sure. You know, if you could give a few, what would they be? Well, yeah, we've talked about a few of them here, but maybe just to kind of summarize them. I think yeah. the diversity as an output of HR or marketing is good, but it's table stakes for any poker players out there. It's your little minimum ante, right? So it's good, it's not bad, but it's just the baseline. There's mm -hmm. so much more. That's an important starting point because so many people believe because that they're spending so much time, energy, and even money in HR and marketing that they're able to go, hey, we're doing it, and it's either working or it's not. So just the understanding that, there's, that HR and marketing might be good, but their table stakes is a very important thing to take away from this conversation. The second thing is the connection between diversity in all of its forms and innovation. The science and the scholarship are very clear, very clear of the interrelatedness of those two things and it makes logical sense. So the more innovation you need or the more reliant you are on innovative techniques, the more you should be investing and in being intentional about your desires to both attract and work with and understand. It's not just attract talent, that's only part of it. It's who am I working with out in the world, right? How am I changing my various watering holes? If I've worked with distributor A for 50 years, maybe I have to look down the street to distributor B that has some more of this thinking and it's gonna be a value add to my business, right? So diversity and its connection to innovation would be number two. And then the third thing is all of this, inclusive of the, the contributions that diversity makes to innovation, equals outsized revenue performance. So mm. if you care about outsized revenue performance, you should think of this not at some point, but now. I'll give you an example. We work with um, <clears throat> a number of mission-oriented organizations too. One of them in particular, they're diverse, con just like I shared with you earlier, the constituencies of this manufacturing client. Well, they have constituencies too. And, and their constituencies are a over index of diverse consumers. So in the nation, about 20%, just to use the Latino community as an example, about 20% of the country right now is Hispanic. In their case, 40% of their constituency is Hispanic. And the same wow. for black, et cetera. And we had a conversation about not just including diversity as part of an overarching strategy, but making it the entire strategy. Because, you know, our conversation with the CEO was at what what share of your constituents must it be in order for this to be your number one priority? Right. Hmm. So the number one thing that you think about and have everything else follow after that. And so at 40 percent, I mean, you can make a pretty good case. Oh, yeah. Like like why would this be? And also this it should be a this then other stuff. Right. Right. And so that's the kind of thing um, that, that I would ask people to, to really take away is that outsized revenue performance is, is a big part of this. So 
those would be kind of three things. Um, uh, we, we do a lot of this kind of stuff, you know, webinars and different things. And if people want to find out more, they can certainly find out more uh, at blackbrown.us, which is our thinking on, on, the, on the issue. But those are a few things I would, I would leave your listeners with. Charlie, for those of you, or for those of our listeners who want to continue listening to you, I think you, you are quite inspired and, and your words are, I mean, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. The intentionality behind it is, is killer for me. So I would love for our listeners to continue following you. Where else can they hear you other than Black Brown? Sure. So um, we do a podcast that is part of Black Brown called Unsiloed. And you can imagine that the name is, is intentional as well, because I've talked Indeed. about some of the siloed sort of thinking. So you can check that out on any kind of um, audio platform. Blackbrown.us is, is the business. I also um, do a podcast separate from Black Brown called Living the Call, which is a podcast that's focused on the intersection of faith and influence. So influential business leaders and people from all over the world who, who have a faith walk and talk about how that has shaped who they are in business or in the movies or in whatever field that they're in. Um, and you can also get that on any particular platform. So those are a couple of ways that, um, that you can get in contact with my work. Awesome. This has been a wonderful conversation that I would hope to continue on because this work is never done, as you know. Anytime. Um, oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Jenny. Great to see you again. You Take too. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Transfix Inc. or any parent companies or affiliates or the companies with which the participants are affiliated and may have been previously disseminated by them. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are based upon information considered reliable, but neither Transfix Inc. nor its affiliates nor the companies with which the participants are affiliated warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. All views and opinions are subject to change.